Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators Foundation's conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how we can collectively put human rights at the, at the top of agenda. I'm Kim, I'm legal policy intern at Human Rights Foundation. As a brief overview, HRF is an international nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in common causes of promoting liberal democracy. You can visit our website, hrf.org, to learn more about, our, more about the work we do. Please also make sure to follow us on Twitter for more conversations like the one we'll be having today. And as a reminder, this conversation will be recorded and released as a podcast episode in the future. We will also have a Q&A session at the end of the discussion, so if you have any questions, please DM them directly to HRF. In today's discussion, we will talk about the Uyghurs. When we think of plights of the Uyghurs, we think of the genocide that's taking place in the Uyghur region. Uyghurs who live in constant fear of being invited for a tea by the Chinese state officials, being detained, being sent to so-called schools, or just disappear without a trace. The fear is invisible there, and yet it's everywhere. It's in the Wi-Fi cables, it's in changing textbooks, it's in security cameras and checkpoints. And what most aren't aware of is that this is a fear that extends, that even the Uyghurs living thousands of miles away from Beijing carry every day. Uyghurs abroad live in fear of being photographed at a random restaurant, in fear of putting their family members in danger back at home, and in many cases, especially for those who reside in the countries that are deemed sensitive by the Chinese government, fear of being detained and repatriated. Like Uyghur Diasporanki, who constantly express that they, do not, they no longer feel safe as Turkey is closely aligning itself with Beijing. Like the Uyghur, Uyghur refugees in Pakistan, who have been threatened of repatriation by Pakistani officers. And even for those who reside in the UK and the US, all express the same experience of self-censorship to avoid China's harassment abroad. By mobilizing its informal network, including those Uyghur informant spyware, and leveraging its expanding economic partnership in host countries, the CCP has managed to stifle Uyghur voices overseas while effectively avoiding accountability and undermining the international human rights standards. To shed further light extent of the CCP's effort to project its authoritarian rule beyond its border, and to raise awareness on, on how the CCP has been repeatedly violating the sovereignty of other states, we are joined by a very rich panel of experts to discuss the topic. First, we have Dr. David Tobin, lecturer in East Asian Studies at University of Sheffield, who co-authored a report about China's transnational oppression, We Know You Better Than Yourself. Ms. Rushana Bas, a dedicated Uyghur activist, founder and executive director at Campaign for Uyghurs, which is a nonprofit organization committed to advocate and promote human rights and the democratic freedoms of the Uyghurs. And Yalkun Ulyol, research assistant at Koch University, author of another brilliant report about transnational oppression against Uyghur dissidents in Turkey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's such a pleasure, and I have to admit that it's also a very th sad thing that there is such a pressing need to talk about this topic. Um, to kick off our discussion, the first question I have here is open to all of our panelists. Um, China's transnational oppression against Uyghur diaspora seems to really operate in two ways. The first is silencing and intimidating Uyghurs through censorship and the utilization of Uyghur informant groups. And the second approach revolves around China's leveraging its expanding economic partnership in exchange for complicity of its partner countries in cracking down on dissidents. Um, so based on your expertise and personal experiences, 
Could you could you please discuss the predominant practices and tactics often used in the transnational oppression of Uyghur diaspora? Um, who are the primary groups that are mostly most frequently targeted, and which governments most compliant or cooperative with the CCP? Um, I guess we can go alphabetic. So, Dr. David, would you like to go first? Thank you. Yes, I'll begin. One, the main point to, to address when we begin talking about transnational oppression of the Uyghur diaspora is, is the different tactics used by China compared to, for example, say Russia, and this is reflected in who they target. Transnational oppression of the Uyghur diaspora is universal. It is not targeting dissidents or famous political figures, though it does, but it targets all Uyghurs. It tracks all Uyghurs. We see this in the official documents we used in our research report, the Public Security Bureau manuals, the police notes, um, that really say every person that leaves the region should be tracked and every person that returns should be tracked. And the key tactic is taking their families hostage and trading silence and complicity uh, for the right to talk to their own family. So this is one reason why it's over, it's been, the issue has been overlooked for so long, because Uyghurs, many Uyghurs are, are frightened by such invasive violent tactics. But it's also something that security services often overlook because this does not appear at first to be a security issue because most of the tactics are, are targeting ordinary people, asking them to inform on ordinary people. Of course, this does target high level figures, public advocates and so forth, but everyone is affected. And all the documents we work with are quite specific that this is about tracking people's daily activities, essentially their identity, essentially what they do with their daily business, who they talk to. It's an externalization of an internal policy of genocide that tries to track every form of daily behavior and thinking, which of course includes Uyghur language, of course includes Islam, but really includes any form of activity that might be deemed un-Chinese. So it's really an externalization of what we have seen since 2017 uh, as a, essentially an attempt to annihilate a people. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Roshan, would you like to follow up? So, uh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk about uh, what we are facing as Uyghurs and as a uh, family of a direct victim of China's genocide and transnational repression. I am an Uyghur American who has been living in the United States since 1989. Just a little over five years ago, I was a business professional that never expected to become a full-time activist and traveling around the world trying to expose China's genocide and transnational repression and fight for my own sisters and the millions of Uyghurs' freedom. So as uh, uh, David eloquently described, the Chinese government uses everything they can to um, hold our family members hostage. Um, and also every single Uyghurs in diaspora, they are um, being uh, intimidated and they uh, control their uh, movement or speeches. And uh, the CCP also uses tactics such as a harassment of the family members back home, confiscating their passports and the threats, and they uh, arrest their family members, um, like myself. My free speech in the United States came at a high cost. My own sister, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, was taken hostage by the Chinese government to silence me just six days after my first public speech in September 2018. And now um, five years that she is uh, in jail somewhere in dark dungeon 
basically now today I am exercising my First Amendment rights at the cost of her freedom. So no one is safe from the uh, CCP's transnational repression. None of the Uyghurs, all the Uyghurs in diaspora are being subject to, but not only the Uyghurs, but when you look at it, the world leaders, politicians, celebrities, famous talk show hosts, NBA athletes, and the, the CEOs of the companies that using the Uyghurs for um, for uh, Uyghurs forced labor for their benefits, for their, for their profits. Uh, many of the academia, they're all being silent. If the CCP can reach me living in my home in Virginia and ravage my heart, holding my dear sister, uh, a retired medical doctor in prison, and if they can influence, manipulate, and silence all these people who I just counted um, above, you know, Usually these people are so vocal against any kind of social injustice, but they are silent against the CCP's um, active genocide, slavery, forced sterilization of the Uyghur women, forced abortions, forcibly making Uyghur girls marry Han Chinese men while they are offering money, housing, and jobs for those Chinese men to go marry Uyghur girls. If they refuse such a forced marriage, the CCP uses the radicalization or Islamic extremization to arrest all of her families, herself and her siblings, her parents, in the name of Islamic extremists, didn't want to marry Han Chinese Muslim, I mean, Han uh, atheist uh, uh, Chinese man. So in the front of something like this, where are those um, strong voices who are usually so vocal, rightfully they should, but where are they? Where are the feminists? Where are the people who are supposed to represent children's rights? Um, so if they can reach me, and yeah, surely they can reach every one of you. So this is not just about the Uyghurs, the stake, the Uyghurs' future is at stake, or Uyghurs in diaspora or their family members are at stake, but our freedom and democracy and the future of the world, future of the world is at stake. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your stories and insights. Um, Yokun Chan, would you, like to, would you like to share your thoughts? Yes, sure. Thank you very much for the, for organizing uh, for organizing space, and um, uh, I I I would totally agree with what David Harushen has said about the transnational repression and other dimensions of the repressive policies of the CCP against Uyghurs and other groups in China. Uh, but in light of my recent report on Uyghur diaspora here in Turkey, I'd like to state that the CCP has established a transnational network to spy on Uyghurs, not only in Turkey but also uh, all around the world. And the Chinese police leverage intelligence gathered via these transnational networks to control Uyghurs living in the diaspora. And they pressure those Uyghurs in the diaspora to work for them as informants, keep silent about human rights situation uh, back, uh, back home in China, and take part in pro-China propaganda. So uh, the, the transnational the network of transnational repression consists of agencies at play in the Uyghur region and also in the diaspora, uh, both at the home and also the state. So in, in the Uyghur region, there are neighborhood working groups or police that are collecting information about the Uyghur community uh, living in the diaspora from their family members. And they report those uh, intelligence gathered to local police uh, who set up files on each Uyghur target, just as David mentioned. And the police may also directly get information from families or the victim living in the diaspora. And Chinese missions abroad, including embassies and consulates everywhere, they collaborate with the 
uh, police and neighborhood working groups in terms of information sharing and also uh, communicating or targeting Uyghur victims. So they may contact Uyghur informants in Turkey for more information. If they contact one Uyghur, if the Uyghur collaborates, then it is an informant. If it rejects, then it is a victim. So um, th this can be very, like very basic, very, very basic questions. It can be, oh, uh, do you live in very much Uyghur populated area in Istanbul? Is it Zeytunburnu or Sefakuy? If the Uyghur says yes or no, that is that is one information, and that is already making that victim an informant for the for for the police who are contacting them. So when we when we think about the transnational repression, it's not only about Chinese police harassing uh, Uyghurs abroad, also about Chinese police harassing Uyghurs through their family members if they have any contact. If they don't have any contact, then uh, you know with, uh, not being able to contact is another form of. Uh, transnational repression. The police may directly contact the victim, as I said, or they may they may also contact the victim through their family members by taking hostage, uh, calling them uh, on WeChat or WhatsApp while their family members or actors are absent, and then offering uh, the opportunity to collaborate. If they refuse, then their family member trouble are in trouble. So um, this is a wide, uh, this is systematically planned and uh, scaled uh, efforts to uh, keep Uyghurs silent. If they are not silent, if they are silent already, then uh, trying to make them informants who can feed up uh, the system, who uh, keeps track of every Uyghur's movement all across the globe. So that would be my additional to what David and Rushan said. Thank you so much for, for sharing your insights. And as Ms. Rushan said, most of the Uyghur advocates are um, forced into the world of advocacy because of the family ties. And I believe so, as most Uyghur informants as well, they're also forced to spying on their fears, also because of their heart to protect their families. And I'm curious to learn more about this um, spying network that you mentioned. Um, how is this informants, how are these informants are recruited? Could you um, elaborate a little bit more about the consequences complying or not complying when approached by the police? And do they actually manage to keep themselves and their families safe? So oh, I suppose that question directed to me or to all yes, yes, of course. Well, okay, maybe I can start. So the CCP controls Uyghurs uh, uh, with uh, threats uh, to them uh, with their, uh, and their family members. If they used to collaborate, then their family members might be in trouble. But that is not the only way they do. Um, I think there are also problems with passport renewals, right? So uh, we did find uh, an overlapping pattern where uh, the, when Uyghurs apply for a new Chinese passport, after a few days, the local police in their hometown um, are in action, like they're trying to connect with Uyghur and saying, oh, oh you applied for a, a Chinese passport, right? That is a very complicated process, but I can help you if you want. You know, that is another tactic that they do. Or it can also be financial incentives. Like they, they do have a lot of information about Uyghurs. For instance, one of my participants uh, was very much uh, surprised to learn that uh, the local police in, their home, in his hometown was able to know uh, his uh, difficulty in financial means right he said oh only a few few others around me knew that i was in trouble financially but the police offered me financial incentive um, and he was surprised that they had this information uh, right so it can be fine incentives like offer uh, of money or other means or it can be like for instance if one Uyghur is not able to contact uh, his father or mother for about six five years then the police may just you know call and say oh maybe i can put you in touch with your father and mother only if you collaborate with us so that that can be another way of um, you know, keeping the information flow going. So there are a lot of tactics the Chinese, pol Chinese police are using, and um, we don't we don't know um, how many percentages of tactics are working. Or um, 
how many people are working for them. But as I said, very, very basic information. Like, where do you live? Do you live in this area? Or do you go to this restaurant often? If your answer is yes or no, that's already providing information uh, for the Chinese police. That's already making you an informant, right? So in that sense, what we have to do is like defining what, what an informant is. Uh, for me, informant is um, someone who is making the information flow going from uh, the diaspora community and to the local police stations. So even if it is a very simple question without any incentive or, you know, the, the Uyghur was just like trying to protect his father or mother was just like trying to keep the contact going, then he is political information that he or she thought would harm no one, but still that makes the information going and that makes the informant, that makes uh, that victim an informant. So uh, that would be uh, my answer to your question. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm so surprised to learn about the financial aspect and I'm already learning so much. Um, Dr. David, do you have anything to add on this? Yes, Yalkin's given a very full and clear answer, but I'll add just a little bit. I mean, it is a tragedy that in the era of the smartphone, we are intimately connected at all times, which has a, a wonderful side, but it also means you can be found at any time. So most Ubers are being contacted directly through messaging apps. Those who... We, those who we interviewed had been moving across Asia through human smuggling rings to escape China. They were even being tracked through GPS. Um, so it's essentially interconnectivity that means people are easier to find um, in, in this era. And Yelku's quite correct about the, the financial incentives, which really did surprise us, uh, myself and Nerola Elma, um, when we were in the field, because um, people were being offered very small amounts of money um, to conduct very harmful surveillance. And for example, we interviewed a man who had caught um, an informant who was spying on him. He took his phone from the man and he kept the phone and he downloaded the data so we could look through the whole data and read the conversations um, with the police. And it's really saying, the police are quite clearly saying we'll give you things like 200 lira for uh, Turkish lira per photograph of a person, an ordinary person in a restaurant, in a shop, etc. Tiny amounts of money, but obviously these are people that people are being targeted and are vulnerable to that are in a situation where they may be on the verge of statelessness themselves, they may be in poverty. So that's financial incentive is one, um, but the other which is more invasive and more widespread is of course family contact. I'm saying we will allow you to speak to your family if, if you play ball, if you comply with their commands. This really happens, what also surprises was how low level that this practice is operated at. Most people are being contacted by local policemen in their Paichu Swa, the local police station. If they complied with that, either in the small ways that Yalkin described by answering questions or by conducting activities, um, that, that relationship would, would stay at that level. But some people who, who sort of answer some questions but refuse to conduct activities, that would then be moved up to things like the Jungwei, the Political and Law Commission, um, or even the Gonganbu um, and Global, essentially public security agents. Um, that, ha that happened if people essentially cooperated or were too frightened to, to essentially tell them no. Um, so I would describe that as a relationship of abuse uh, that does not keep people safe. The people conducting surveillance and agreeing to do things for family contact were not being made more safe by doing that. It was making them unsafe because then they were getting more and more messages and more and more demands and more and more serious threats. The people we interviewed who essentially said, no, I will not 
collect information on people, um, they would eventually be left alone because there's not a lot we could do. Uh, the, the title of our report, uh, We Know You Better Than You Know Yourself, was a threat uh, mm-hmm. by a policeman, uh, or sorry, by a global a security official um, threatening a lady to participate um, in surveillance. She said, absolutely not. I'll answer any questions about myself. I will not take photos of ordinary people going about their business, ordinary people going to a restaurant. And eventually they there was nothing they could do. The contact was broken and they were left alone. Now that means they are probably under surveillance. Um, they will be on lists, but the, the harassment stops. So it really starts low level and builds up to a high level. Um, and it keeps people safe by ignoring it, uh, by just saying no. Thank you so much for the explanation. And I would like to follow up a little bit in terms of being targeted or approached by police. Um, I know you also did did some um, comparative analysis in your research according to the different countries. I'd like to ask if you have observed any differences in the implementation of such um, transnational oppression practices in democratic countries and fully or competitive authoritarian regimes. The actual practices of transnational repression conducted by the party state are are largely similar in each place, except the party state knows it cannot get away with the same tactics in an authoritarian state as it can in a democracy. What we did see in the police notes that we used in a report was that most of the comments about Turkey were really referring to anyone that goes to Turkey, anyone that's going to a restaurant in Turkey, Whereas the notes on, in, for example, that mentioned Britain were a bit more specific, naming more high profile figures, for asking people to follow specific people. Whereas in Turkey, this is very, very widespread. What we also found, which is a huge, it's the outcome that is changed, the outcome that is impacted depending on the host state. Weaker groups in Turkey felt vulnerable. Um, Inside Turkey, they were concerned that Turkish police might be involved. They were concerned um, that there was collaboration and cooperation between Turkey and China. Whereas in, in Britain, the population was not afraid that the British government or British police would be collaborating with China at all. They were concerned that they wouldn't support them, that they wouldn't provide the correct advice, or they wouldn't do anything. But essentially, they were not afraid of being taken away by the British police. So whether someone resides in a democracy or an authoritarian state had a huge outcome, and this shaped the demands and the needs of the Uyghur community. Most people we interviewed at that time were very specific that they wanted to go to Canada, specifically because of the the public announcement of a quota of 10,000... be a democracy and it'd be a government that were very explicit and public that they would support Uyghurs facing the state of transnational repression, that they did not feel they would have the same support in Turkey or other states that are not full democracies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Shan, you also also have a lot of experience working with um, lawmakers and congresses at different countries. Um, Do you have anything to add on? Um, yes, and I would like to um, elaborate a little more about the, the, the previous question about some of the uh, implementations and what we are facing and the, what's the uh, result that's causing you know, the fear of intimidation tactics 
by the CCP for the Uyghurs and diaspora, how it's contributing to a climate of um, self-censorship among the Uyghurs living abroad, um, stifling the freedom of expression and restricting their activism. When you see like five years ago, when this mass detention came up to the surface, we had so many Uyghur activists coming out speaking when we have hearings at the uh, congressional um, hearings at the Capitol Hill here in Washington. Uh, we used to have a room full of Uyghur Americans carrying their families, missing family members, pictures coming and uh, demanding information and uh, asking the lawmakers to help them. But I testified um, last week, last Monday at the Congressional Executive Committee on China. Um, on the transnational repression. And when I looked around, I only saw two Uyghur people sitting behind me. So basically, um, the implementations for the, uh, the global democracy that's you know, uh, causing this kind of uh, China's long arm across its borders, say transnational repression to the Uyghurs, poses challenges for the uh, global democracy. And the, um, like personally for myself, since they couldn't, uh, they couldn't silence me. And when I doubled down and tripled down my efforts, I quit my full-time job and they, um, just did doing everything I can to expose China's crimes. Um, you know what they are doing to me last few years, um, using every social media platform to harass me and uh, um, distorting the truth and trashing me and uh, you know, having a disinformation campaign against me. Um, not only that, in person, when I um, give a speech in, uh, at the universities, I always have attacks by uh, the Ch some of the Chinese students. A university in New York covertly canceled our panel with Tibetans, Hong Kongers, and the Chinese activists at Columbia University. Uh, and also I have uh, uh, faced attacks on the uh, uh, streets across the U.S. and Europe and Australia and even Southeast Asia threatened and harassed on the streets of Tokyo, Jakarta, San Francisco, and in Boston. So the autocracy of the CCP's efforts to silence the activists like myself um, reached, reached the new heights um, when uh, uh, they are using a uh, campaign of disinformation and they're having millions of trolls attacking us and harassing us. And even some of the Uyghurs in diaspora, because their family members are in detention or um, like, as uh, Yalkon Uhyul mentioned earlier, every single Uyghur people are subject to Chinese police uh, intimidating them, calling them and asking them to course and be giving information about us. I have been told actually from some people um, in the United States, in the Virginia and the Maryland area, uh, the Chinese police asks about my health when they call and ask for information. If uh, I have a favorite restaurant to go, who are my friends? Where I usually like to uh, go when I have like uh, when I go out or when I um, have some free time, which I don't have any free time. I don't have any hobbies anymore. But um, these are the kind of uh, intimate, uh, you know, immediate uh, threat that uh, we are facing as we were activists. So um, we we do need the governments. Um, and the uh, industry, institutional help, uh, like the governments can uh, play a differing roles when it comes to the issue of transnational repression um, of the Uyghurs. And some governments openly condemn and they take action against these human rights abuses, imposing some sanctions, limiting trade ties, and the 
advocating for international investigations. Um, as David mentioned, there are all kinds of Chinese uh, police stations all over. There's three in the United States, and we have heard that one is closed, but uh, uh, still we have so many different organizations. For example, you know, Confucius Institutes are one uh, good uh, part of the, the controlling the, the academia freedom and the monitoring all the uh, uh, Chinese students or asking them to um, attack us or, uh, you know, um, harass us during our speeches and events. So unless if we take uh, some sort of um, joint action as individuals, as uh, the governments or civil society organizations um, acknowledge and address this kind of transnational repression against Uyghurs in diaspora, um, it's actually a violation of human uh, rights that requires um, some sort of commitment and the strong action to safeguarding the principles of democracy and freedom and justice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really want to follow up on this global aspect that you have mentioned. Um, this transnational oppression scheme is definitely expanding globally, just like a few days ago, where China urged UN missions not to attend the Uyghur panel at UNGA, um, which also shows that it's becoming much more diverse in form and is targeting a very diverse area of people, as you mentioned earlier, um, even including like government officials like um, Michael Chong. So um, my next question for you all is that how like china's transnational repression it's it obviously constitutes a violation of the international law the law and constitution of both china and the host countries um how is china claiming legitimacy or justifying its action that that it still continues to expand so globally and is it is it because that there's lack of um unified international coping mechanism like you mentioned so china's authoritarian practices is expanding so globally or is it because it expanded so quickly and have already created kind of a global split where some countries are being such a vocal over the situation in one geographic location and then total silence in the, uh, another. Which this is why like, there's no unified international coping mechanism against the Chinese um, transnational oppression. Can I just uh, quickly answer that very quickly? Yes, actually, you are absolutely right. Um, in countries like in United States, UK or Canada, and a few handful of countries in Europe, maybe uh, being vocal and they are uh, trying to have some sort of uh, coping mechanism to hold China accountable. But many other countries, um, especially in uh, some of the uh, Muslim majority countries, uh, we are not having any sort of recognition or um, action from the government. So, and many of the European countries, um, including some of the countries that we have a lot of uh, the Uyghur uh, people are living. Um, they're doing absolutely nothing. It's really frustrating when you see the, uh, uh, some of the countries and the, uh, the, the international entities, especially in the United Nations, um, doing absolutely uh, nothing. Um, we all know that uh, more than a year ago, we had the uh, Denning report, the human rights report on the Uyghurs calling the China's uh, actions is uh, constitute crimes against humanity. Very little has changed since then. Um, we don't see General Secretary Guterres ever mentioning China and any kind of human rights abuses in anywhere. Um, the UN Working Group in Arbitrary Detention Opinions on multiple cases, and they, we didn't see any kind of collective um, efforts to asking uh, for the release of those um, individuals. So 
Um, yeah, this is how the genocide begins by taking um, away your family members and silencing the others. And the, uh, nobody has the moral courage to step up and do something. So it's, it's extremely frustrating for us. In terms, I'll ask sort of the question about legitimacy and relate this to the topic specifically. We need to remember broadly that the way the party state legitimates itself at home and abroad are very different. There are many parallel narratives in both language sources, but in English language, obviously, the party state simply denies that this is happening, calls it propaganda or fake news, this kind of stuff. It's the kind of narratives we get as researchers get thrown at us either by emails or public attacks. But at home, uh, in terms of the documents that we analysed that are given to cadres, to security officials actually conducting these policies, the narrative is obviously very different. Simply, the narrative is that every person born on the soil of the PRC is forever a citizen or at least owned by the PRC government. So the Chinese government itself sees people abroad as still as under its jurisdiction, regardless of where they live. An example of that is how easy it is to repatriate. Um, in China, obviously in China, one cannot have dual nationality. Um, you can quite easily give that up, but it's one of the easiest countries in the world to regain your nationality if you go back. And obviously if you're not a criminal dissident or targeted person. The notion of backflow prevention that is used in these documents that I mentioned about controlling people going across, that leave um, the region or return, that's very important to understand that much of that is about information control. So it's the whole policy is about, of course, is about targeting the Uyghur people, but it's also about making sure that there is no knowledge produced on the subject. We've seen that in official speeches on what Xi Jinping calls ethnic policy. Um, we've, we've seen um, government make statements that Xinjiang policy's focus now is international, stopping control of information. It mentions you know, concepts like terrorism, which are very problematic in this context, obviously, but it also mentions foreign researchers. This is seen as a threat to China's territorial integrity and its existence. Obviously, this is absurd, but this, this control of information so that no one can talk about the subject is hugely important to the party because we are simply, as researchers, just telling the truth. Um, but the reality is if you go to China or if you do this type of research and you report what you see and you tell the truth, you will not get to go back. You will not get a research visa. You will have to can end your career. And of course, people who work in this area do receive threats and all sorts of weird and wonderful emails from all sorts of people. Um, and then we're, brought, then we're specifically on transnational repression of the affected communities. Well, these types of practices do affect all sorts of communities, dissidents, Hong Kongers, Tibetans, these tactics are used, but what is what's different, um, certainly in the Uyghur case, say compared to the Hong Kong case, is, is the targeting of Uyghurs as a people. Uh, of course, we know Hong Kong dissidents are, are strongly targeted using similar tactics, um, but they're dissidents, political actors. What we have found is ordinary Uyghurs are attacked, are targeted in their everyday behaviour. Um, the, the notion of daily activities is used, of course, all the time, really targeting the way they not simply practice their identity, but simply go about their business, their associations, their speech, etc. Um, and as you know, rights abuses in anywhere, um, the UN working group in arbitrary detention, detention opinions on multiple cases, and they, we didn't see any kind of collective um, efforts to asking uh, for the release of those um, individuals 
So, um, yeah, this is how the genocide begins by taking um, away your family members and silencing the others. And the, uh, nobody has the moral courage to step up and do something. So it's, it's extremely frustrating for us. In terms, I'll ask sort of the question about legitimacy and relate this to the topic specifically. We need to remember broadly that the way the party state legitimates itself at home and abroad are very different. There are many parallel narratives in both language sources, but in English language, obviously, the party state simply denies that this is happening, calls it propaganda or fake news, this kind of stuff. The kind of narratives we get as researchers get thrown at us either by emails or public attacks. But at home, uh, in terms of the documents that we analysed that are given to cadres, to security officials actually conducting these policies, the narrative is obviously very different. Simply, the narrative is that every person born on the soil of the PRC is forever a citizen or at least owned by the PRC government. So the Chinese government itself sees people abroad as still as under its jurisdiction, regardless of where they live. An example of that is how easy it is to repatriate. Um, in Ch obviously in China, one cannot have dual nationality. Um, you can quite easily give that up, but it's one of the easiest countries in the world to regain your nationality if you go back. And obviously if you're not a criminal dissident or targeted person. The notion of backflow prevention that is used in these documents that I mentioned about controlling people going across, that leave um, the region or return, that's very important to understand that much of that is about information control. So it's the whole policy is about, of course, is about targeting the Uyghur people, but it's also about making sure that there is no knowledge produced on the subject. We've seen that in official speeches on what Xi Jinping calls ethnic policy, um, we've, we've seen um, government make statements that Xinjiang policies focus now is international, stopping control of information. It mentions, you know, concepts like terrorism, which are very problematic in this context, obviously, but it also mentions foreign researchers. This is seen as a threat to China's territorial integrity and its existence. Obviously, this is absurd, but this, this control of information so that no one can talk about the subject is hugely important to the party because we are simply, as researchers, just telling the truth. Um, but the reality is if you go to China or if you do this type of research and you report what you see and you tell the truth, you will not get to go back. You will not get a research visa. You will have to, they can end your career. And of course, people who work in this area do receive threats and all sorts of weird and wonderful emails from all sorts of people. Um, and then we're brought, they were specifically on transnational repression of the affected communities. Well, these types of practices do affect all sorts of communities, dissidents, Hong Kongers, Tibetans, these tactics are used, but what is what's different, um, certainly in the Uyghur case, say compared to the Hong Kong case, is, is the targeting of Uyghurs as a people. Uh, of course, we know Hong Kong dissidents are, are strongly targeted using similar tactics, um, but they're dissidents, political actors. What we have found is ordinary Uyghurs are attacked or targeted in their everyday behaviour. Um, the, the notion of daily activities is used, of course, all the time, really targeting the way they not simply practice their identity, but simply go about their business, their associations, their speech, etc. Um, and as you know, as Shan is correct to say, there has been almost no action on the subject um, on this specific area. 
Um, there's been a misunderstanding of what transnational repression actually is, whether it exists, because it's so difficult to get information on and because people are frightened. But it's also one of those issues that states aren't sure what to do about it in international law. Lawmaker or policymakers will say, we don't know what to do about the family hostage situation because it doesn't break international law for a policeman to sit with a family and make veiled threats. If, if a violent threat is made or a crime is committed, you can call the police in Britain, but there is not much someone can do. So it's a difficult issue to address. Um, but as Rishan also said, the UN should be that place. The UN supposedly exists essentially to promote human rights, which are in a constructed concept to protect humans from state violence, from the Holocaust, because when states have too much power and no accountability, people suffer. Um, but in that venue, there's very, very little action. You referenced the UNGA event that was targeted. During our research, we found many people who were on the verge of statelessness in Turkey. Temporary visas that are given, humanitarian visas for two years were expiring. We could have frightened people not knowing what to do because they felt scared of, of turning to the authorities. So we would contact um, UNHCR and OHCHR about these issues, but I was personally blocked. My emails are actually blocked um, by the relevant contacts in those areas. I showed these emails to a lawyer, confirmed that looks like you have been personally blocked because you've written to them asking for action and support for people who are about to be made stateless. So the problem really is that whilst issues such as forced labour are high profile, extremely important, um, but these are that issue is in the interest of large democracies in a traditional sense that's about economic competition, that these issues that are seen as smaller, affecting ordinary people, not just the people at the top, that is a more thorny issue. We need more momentum from the bottom, as Roshan said, and obviously more courage at the UN for it to stand up for its own principles. I think I would add uh, a little to what Roshan and David has said, have said. So I think the transnational repression is a direct threat to fundamental freedoms of Uyghurs living overseas. And, but also it constitutes a severe violation of the national sovereignty of third countries where those Uyghurs are residing and um, sometimes are residents of or citizens of. So in terms of um, uh, a coordinated action, there's nothing on transnational repression. Some countries uh, like Australia has uh, dedicated hotlines to report transnational repression, but some others, they don't. And I think how to deal with transnational repression, I think the first way to do is acknowledging that it is a repression, right? It is not something um, that Uyghurs make up. It is, it is happening on, and we have so many evidence and testimonies. Um, police records, you know, screenshots of phone calls, direct threats, voicemails, and whatever um, that you know, uh, that constitutes or uh, threatens the Uyghurs, uh, through constitutes transnational oppression and threatens Uyghurs. And I think uh, more countries, including those liberal democracies, need to acknowledge that transnational oppression is a form of foreign, inter foreign interference and is um, a form uh, that dangers the safety of its residents or citizens. I think uh, going into, you know, coordinated action at the international platform, I think the host states first need to acknowledge that transnational repression is a repression and is a direct threat to the safety of the people. Not only the Uyghurs, as David and Rushan mentioned, it's happening to Hong Kongers, it's happening to Tibetans, and it's even happening to many academics or experts or human rights activists of non-China non or non-Uyghur or non-Tibetan heritage, right? 
um, it happens like for instance for me just directly after releasing the targeted in Turkey I report uh, a few days later I received a phone call from somebody based in Turkey um, that person said oh police are asking for you and and they knew my uh, that they knew that my daughter was not well so they the police asked that specific individual to go and visit my family uh, because you know oh his daughter just recovered why don't you pay a visit and see what he is up to what he is doing you know these are like direct threat to me and my family but i cannot put this to somewhere because people are not acknowledging is it as a repression or a crime or uh, you know interference to my life uh, so i think Yes, there's almost nothing uh, happening in terms of, you know, uh, tackling the transnational oppression. There is like rising awareness in some of the countries, but we still don't have uh, enough um, acknowledgement officially, legally, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how to how to counter uh, the transnational oppression that CPC are, um, you know, using against the Uyghurs and others who are living abroad. So I think that is a very, very important aspect. Thank you so much for, for all of your answers. And um, to highlight one of the most worrying um, transnational oppression tactics, I'd like to turn back a little bit about what um, Yalkonjan mentioned about the passport control. Um, we know that enforced return and statelessness is one of the most used tactics by CCP. We also know that dissidents are usually either summoned back by the Chinese police or they might face some kind of compulsions from the host countries through extradition treaties or Interpol red notice. And also, like what Yalkonjan mentioned before, Chinese embassies have been refusing to, to provide consular services to extend dissidents' passports. And the access to asylum pathway have also become increasingly challenging, all of which contributes to the enforced statelessness of Uyghurs in diaspora. So I would like to ask um, your opinion or observations about these enforced return practices. And I'm curious to what extent the host governments are collaborating with China to facilitating them. Would you like to go? Thank you. Please, please go ahead, Dr. David. Okay, I mean, this topic is obviously very murky in the sense that there are not many, we're not going to find clear written, many clear written agreements um, to break international law, non-refoulement. You know, we know that has happened in Thailand, we know cause a massive controversy. Um, but it's very difficult to find information on, on that specific topic. I do recommend Freedom House reports that do research that specifically quite extensively. Uh, on the ground in Turkey, we did find people afraid of being deported back to China. We did interview people saying people that they knew were deported back to China secretly, um, specifically because they had spoken out against China. Those, those who had spoken out ended up being, in their words of our interviewees, ended up being targeted. But we can't, we, we don't find written evidence of this. And it's obviously, we're being told this second hand about people who have disappeared. Um, so we don't know if there are written agreements, but we do know that essentially in Turkey, the community was quite frightened of this happening to them. Whereas in Britain, we, we did not find that at all. We did not people did not expect to be deported. We did interview someone who claimed there were agreements uh, around protest in Turkey 
uh, written agreements uh, between protesters and local police to say do not protest when the Chinese um, visit is in town, uh, when there are high level geopolitical visits. Uh, but again, we don't, we don't have these documents. Uh, so most of this is through testimony um, and we're unlikely to find direct written evidence to confirm this. But we do know this is also beyond those cases I've described. Uh, this situation in Central Asia, I gather, is dire. Um, numerous researchers are currently working there, finding Kazakhstan, the situation is deteriorating, um, and people are also frightened. Uh, to add what David has, I think there are um, uh, there are different tactics used against different types of waivers, right? So in one case, one of my participants said, um, no, he was politically active. He was asking for bots of his family members. Uh, but later on, his passport was expired and have a Turkish citizen. So he applied for a passport. And the Chinese consulate contacted that person and said, you have been helping minority students with their passport renewals, but you will not get renewal because you have been in contact with the wrong people. So... In this, in this call, we know that there are some waivers who are getting their passports renewed, uh, but there are also people who are not uh, being that lucky in terms of passport renewals. And we do also have, um, you know, evidence from courts, for instance, um, you know, uh, Human Rights Project, they, they, they did document uh, a report in 2020, uh, how embassy officials uh, even destroy valid passports, leaving many waivers overseas papers. So in that sense, the, the Chinese mission abroad, different, uh, they, they definitely are involved in this um, passport renewal processes and difficulties of waivers getting a valid uh, travel document. Um, a part of that, uh, I think, um, for instance, the latest report of UHRP is urging the United States uh, to, pass, uh, to give the waiver asylum seekers or refugees uh, a fast track of in terms of their green cards uh, because they've been you know waiting so long and we also see that there are people in Turkey who are getting citizenships there are people getting uh, residence permits long term but there are also uh, people who are not getting um, a legal uh, residence permit so in that sense they're, they've been applying uh, you know you know United Nations and international organizations to help them to have a value documents to have a proper health insurance, proper travel document and everything. So in that sense, it is not only about countries like, uh, you know, in Turkey, but also um, in liberal democracies, there are a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, getting a valid a citizenship status or having a long term residence permit. And this is only possible when we acknowledge the situation, raise awareness and let the host states to take concrete action. Each country needs to do some protect the Uyghurs living within their territories, not only from the transnational oppression, but also uh, to prevent them becoming stateless or prevent them not being able to access to health, education, or being able to travel. So that would be my addition. Ms. Roshan, do you have anything to add on? I think we are approaching toward the end. So I just want to uh, sum up with more general um, a conclusion here. You know, the transnational repression of the Uyghurs in diaspora poses challenges for a global democracy, as Yokun uh, said, and it highlights the uh, struggle between universal human rights standards, the economic and geopolitical interest and the China's influence all over the world. Um, so the CCP's efforts to silence and control Uyghurs beyond its borders that demonstrates an 
attempt to export its authoritarian practices um, to all over the, the globally. The uh, totalitarian ideology basically has uh, returned to the world in full force with China's economic and financial influences and manipulation in the world. So if we don't amplify our voice, voices against the um, transnational repression and the censorship, um, we will lose the most critical um, uh, disinformation war of the, uh, the information era and the genocide denial will continue. Um, in liberal democracies, there are a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, getting a valid uh, citizenship status or having a long-term residence permit. And this is only possible when we acknowledge the situation, raise awareness, and let the host states to take concrete action. Each country needs to do some protect the Uyghurs living within their territories, not only from the transnational repression, but also uh, to prevent them becoming stateless or prevent them not being able to access to health, education, or being able to travel. So that would be my ambition. Mr. Shan, do you have anything to add on? I think we are approaching toward the end. So I just want to uh, sum up with more general um, a conclusion here, you know, the transnational repression of the Uyghurs in diaspora poses challenges for a global democracy, as Yokon uh, said, and it highlights the uh, struggle between universal human rights standards, the economic and geopolitical interest and the China's influence all over the world. Um, so the CCP's efforts to silence and control Uyghurs beyond its borders uh, demonstrates an attempt to export its authoritarian practices um, to all over the, the globally. The uh, totalitarian ideology basically has uh, returned to the world in full force with China's economic and financial influences and manipulation in the world. So if we don't amplify our voice, voices against the um, transnational repression and the censorship, um, we will lose the most critical um, uh, disinformation war of the, uh, the information era and the genocide denial will continue to uh, become easier and we will watch the concept of the, the truth and accountability disappear, basically. So I want to conclude by reading my favorite quote from the uh, Nobel Peace Prize nominee and the international human rights lawyer, David Easier, and we will watch the concept of the, the truth and accountability disappear, basically. So I want to conclude by reading my favorite quote from the uh, Nobel Peace Prize nominee and international human rights lawyer, David Mathis, quote, unless if today's victims are defended, we run the risk of becoming tomorrow's victims, unquote. So unless if we take a swift action, unless if we call our uh, democratic countries to hold China accountable and to safeguard the freedom of conscience without oppression and to preserve the fundamental principles of democracy and human dignity, and their freedoms uh, for uh, generations to come. And if we don't take immediate action and hold the CCP accountable, we don't speak out now, then the only ways left to speak will be one of regret. So this is our last chance to protect our own sovereignty. As uh, Yalkun mentioned, um, this is about the, uh, our, the future world that we are leaving behind for our children and our grandchildren. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Mr. Shan, for such an inspiring quote. And we have already touched upon what, what can we do and what should we do. And so before we wrap up, I'd like to ask um, ask once again if if you have anything to call on um, to like for what can the Uyghur community or the academic community or the governments and individuals do to engage in most effective pushbacks against China's transnational repression? Kelsey, two things. One, two Uyghurs who face transnational repression, uh, I, I would be quite clear to them that the people we interviewed that were kept safe and did not experience repeated harassment were people that would say no and did not cooperate and did not continue to communicate with police or security services. The people calling Uyghur diaspora will have training in manipulation, lies, and are trying to rush them and panic them. And they, that is their job. So people should not be panicked and should not answer the calls until they want to, until they feel comfortable and they know what to say, and they should ignore it. That's what would keep them safe. Uh, secondly, I do want to mention the role of academics and how this affects academics in a specific case. Um, the news yesterday that our very good colleague Rahila Dawood was given a lifelong sentence in prison. This was given by an intermediate regional court, a very far away from Beijing, so it's known as not being as effective as a court in Beijing. And she's been given a life sentence essentially for researching ethnomusicology. I believe her last project um, that she sent to Professor Timothy Gross uh, was going to be on culture and plants. Regional court are very far away from Beijing, so it's known as not being as effective as a court in Beijing. And she's been given a life sentence, essentially for researching ethnomusicology. I believe her last project um, that she sent to Professor Timothy Gross uh, was going to be on culture and plants. I would say that it's the responsibility of anthropologists and social scientists outside of China to comment on that, to speak about that, to make sure that is part of a reality when we talk about China, when we talk about anthropology in China. And I would say that is an issue of transnational repression. It is not as impactful and important as what we've talked about today, but we have a specific role to tell the truth and incorporate that into our analysis so that we do actually understand China and actually know how Chinese politics works and how it affects people's lives. So I would hope that my colleagues do listen to this and think about that and do not think it is worthwhile keeping a research visa in return for silence on people that we work with being arbitrarily detained and disappearing for life. Thank you so much, Dr. David. Um, do you have anything to add on, Mr. Shan or Yalpanjan? Uh, no, I don't, I don't have anything to add. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't uh, agree more with David's uh, words about academia. And they, uh, we are very saddened by the unfair sentence given to um, Raila Dawood. She's gone from a celebrated uh, ethnographer to a uh, splitist, according to the Chinese regime, showing the ongoing Uyghur genocide that's very much active. And it's a modern genocide. And they, uh, we really need to come together and the uh, ends for all. Thank you.
Well, thank you so much. And that's that's all the time that we have for today. Um, thank you so much, Dr. David, Ms. Roshan, and Yalpanjan for joining us and sharing your incredible insights. Um, I have learned so much personally, and, and we truly hope that all the Uyghur dissidents, Tibetan dissidents, and Hong Kongers can all protect themselves and their loved ones in the pursuit of the cherished freedom and democracy of their homelands against the authoritarian expansion of the CCP. Thank you again. And as a reminder, this discussion will be adapted as a podcast episode and will be released onto HRF's podcast series, Dissidents and Dictators, available on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed today's discussion, don't forget to follow our speakers and support their work. Thank you so much again for joining and be sure to tune in next time. Thank you.